0: Good morning, welcome to Westbridge Church. My name is Jeremiah, I'm one of the pastors here and it's so great to have you with us. I wanna say hello to those of you joining us on our online campus. Uh, Thanks for participating through that venue and if you're in a parent viewing room, that's a great option. If you have small children, you prefer to keep with you during the service. Hello to everybody in our cafe. Thanks for joining us there. And uh, man, happy Mother's Day. When I think about uh, all that moms do and all that they um, worked for and sacrificed for, my own mom and my wife, uh, who is a mom to our four kids, and uh, I just am so grateful for all that you do, all that you sacrifice, and we wanna celebrate you today. Uh, Also, I just wanna let you know that this is a couple more weeks left of this series, and then we enter a whole new schedule. Uh, We go into our summer schedule, which will move us from three services to two services, So you'll have to choose between uh, 9 and 10.30. That'll start right after Memorial Day. So Memorial Day weekend, uh, no services here in the building, online only. And then from there, we'll move to our summer schedule starting June 4th. And then that's just for the summer. We move back to our three-service schedule in the fall. So just kind of put that on your radar. Uh, The other thing is, uh, before we jump in today, I want to let you know that right after this service, right here in the front, uh, we do five and five. And so that's five things about Westbridge Church in five minutes or less. And if we've never met before, for, or if you're kind of exploring church and you just want to learn more about who we are as a church, this is the simplest, easiest way to get some of those questions answered. And so we'll just do five things about Westbridge Church in five minutes or less. Cool. Now, we're in a series called Asking for a Friend, and uh, man, this has been a fun series. So we've asked a bunch of these questions, asked and answered a bunch of these questions, and uh, they are, how can anybody believe in resurrection? Uh, We kicked this off right after Easter. Uh, How can I make sense of the Bible? Where did the Bible come from? What is it? How do I read it? Uh, Then we talked about how could a loving God allow suffering, or a lot of times people ask the question, um, you know, why do bad things happen to good people? We walked through that. Uh, last week, can I, can I have faith and still doubt? Many people believe that if I doubt, that's not faith. That's the opposite of faith. I really believe doubt is a part of the faith process, that it leads us to faith. And so if you missed any of those weeks, I'd encourage you to check them out. Today, we're going to dive into the question around faith and science. This is one of the biggest questions that came up when we did our poll on Easter. And uh, it, it, it's kind of this question of, doesn't faith stand in opposition to science? Or, put another way, doesn't science disprove faith? Or can you actually have faith and still believe in modern science? And maybe you've had that question, or maybe you've had a friend who's had that question, and it caused you or it caused someone else to sort of push pause on the whole God thing because you think, I can't reconcile faith with what I've come to understand about science. And if that's you, I'm hoping that you'll be open to this conversation today. We have a few minutes together, and what I'd love to do in the next few minutes is just completely resolve all the issues surrounding evolution and age of the earth, and who's the creator, and what about the Big Bang, and where the dinosaurs go? It'll be a lot of fun. So hang in here with us. Now, I do have a confession to make before we start this topic on faith and science, and it's this. I am not a scientist, so I'm just going to give you a minute to gather yourself around that realization uh, that I'm not a scientist. But what I've done is a lot of research on this, and I've looked into a lot of these things myself, and I hope that you'll come to the conclusion that I have uh, that uh, there is an amazing faith affirmation in science, that science actually affirms faith. And as followers of Jesus, we do not need to be at war with science, that, that faith and science are actually not at odds. Our faith is an informed faith. And I think what you'll discover is that science actually affirms Belief in God. It doesn't disprove it. Uh, one little boy got home from church. I heard this story recently, and he got home from church, and his dad said, what would you learn about at church today? And he said, oh, we learned about faith. And the dad said, well, what is faith? And he goes, well, faith is believing in a bunch of stuff that you know is not true. <laughs> and I think he got that a little twisted, right? And unfortunately, that's how uh, sometimes the, the way that it gets communicated is that you have to believe in things that aren't true if you're going to believe in God. And and science gets pitted against faith, and the two are at odds with each other, and science has become politicized to a a large degree, and and so the message that comes ringing through is that faith and science are mutually exclusive. If you're going to have faith, then you pretty much have to disconnect your brain and just believe in a bunch of nonsense, and then if you're going to believe in science, you pretty much have to suspend any type of belief in anything supernatural, and that the two can't go hand in hand. And there's a couple of myths that you have to deal with when you talk about faith and science, and they're really perpetuated in our modern culture. And one is this, that scientists are anti-faith. The idea is that if I'm a scientist, I study what's happening in the natural world, and therefore I must discard anything that is supernatural. And over the last couple of decades, there's been a big movement called the New Atheists led by Richard Dawkins and a couple of other prominent authors. Richard Dawkins wrote a book called The God Delusion. And they've gotten a lot of airtime and gotten quite a large platform and and claimed that scientists are anti-faith. And the idea and the thinking is this, an intelligent person would never choose to be a person of faith because you aren't basing your life on empirical evidence. And this myth is simply not true. In fact, Elaine Howard Eklund is a professor at Rice University, and she actually published a book several years ago called Science Versus Religion. And the idea was, can the two actually exist in harmony? And here's the, basically the summary of her book. She, she conducted all kinds of interviews. And it says, Eklund surveyed nearly 1,700 scientists and interviewed 250 of them. She finds that most of what we believe about the faith lives of elite scientists is wrong. And this is the conclusion over 50% of them are religious. In fact, what they're finding more and more and more and more and more is that the study of science is actually moving scientists toward faith in God and not away from it. That, that the, the viewpoint of atheism within scientific, the scientific community is actually shrinking because the more that people study a universe of order and complexity and design, the more scientists are being pointed toward the logic of an intelligent design. It's fascinating to think about. And so this myth that uh, scientists are anti-faith is really just a myth. It's been perpetuated, but there's another myth that goes on the flip side of that, and it's this, that Christians are anti-science. So scientists must be anti-faith, and if you're going to be a follower of Jesus, then you just have to throw science out the window. And neither of those things is true. And sometimes that gets perpetuated because of things that have happened in history, where we go, see, the church is against science. In 1632, Galileo proposed that, based on his study of the cosmos and based on his study of, of planets and stars and the way that they move, that he suggested that it's very possible that the sun does not actually rotate around the earth, but that the earth rotates around the sun. And based on uh, that, he presented that belief, and he presented that idea, and the church found it to be heresy. Because when they read Psalm 104, it said, he set the earth on its foundations. It can never be moved. Now, rather than understanding that that is a, a poetic telling of the fact that Jesus, that God holds all things together, they didn't read it that way. And so they tried Galileo for heresy, and he was put under house arrest for the rest of his life. And that's a huge misstep by the church, but. Isolated incidents like that don't build a case that Christians are just anti-science. For followers of Jesus, all truth is God's truth. And so if something actually happens to be proven true in the scientific community, we would be wise not to ignore that, but rather go, okay, how do I then use that information to inform what God is up to in the world? And we believe it's because God created it that way. You don't have to fight against proven science. You don't have to be afraid of proven science. John Polkinghorne was a quantum physicist who worked at Cambridge University. He was a distinguished chair in a prestigious university for years and years. And then uh, one day he stepped down from his chair in the physics department and decided to pursue training as an Anglican priest. And this raised a lot of questions in the scientific community. How could somebody who is so scientific decide to do something that was perceived to be so anti-science? But John Polkinghorne, in his studies, he actually writes this. He says... Both are concerned with the search for truth. If science and theology are both concerned with the search for truth, they are friends and not foes. They actually go hand in hand. This is what a quantum physicist has come to believe, that they are both involved in the search for truth. So, as you approach faith and science with the right frame of mind, I genuinely believe you will discover that you can hold science and faith in their proper places simultaneously. And since science is the study of the natural world, if you have the faith that God created the natural world, then science is simply the study or the observation of what God is up to in the natural world. You could say it like this. Science answers how questions, and faith answers why questions. And you can ask the same question, but they're be, they are oriented differently. The how questions are about the mechanical and the material and what can be measured and studied and observed. The why questions are all about purpose. So while science can tell us what we are made of, faith informs what we are made for. And they're two different questions. They're oriented differently. Even though it might be the same question, they're oriented differently. Think about it like this. If I came home one day and there's a pot of boiling water on the stove and I asked my 14-year-old son, hey, why is there water boiling? He could respond like this. Well, the water is boiling because I turned on the stove, which triggered a chain reaction, which has brought heat to the conductive metal of the pots, now raising the temperature of the water molecules past the boiling point. Now the water molecules can break their attractive bond and the hydrogen can bond and escape as gas. What did you think was happening? (laughs) And he would be correct, and that is a how answer, or he could say this, it would be equally correct. I'm making mac and cheese. One answer is how, and the other answer is why. But they're both the correct answer to the question. In in fact, you could even put it this way. You might say to get the complete picture, you'd actually need both answers. And one doesn't make the other one untrue or vice versa. Both of these are both true. They're just oriented differently. And throughout this series, we've made the claim that God or the Bible or the church isn't really the issue. What, what causes a lot of issues for you and I when it comes to these conversations is the assumptions and the expectations and the lens that we bring to the conversation. And so the church creates a lot of problems unintentionally when we try to answer how questions with why answers. When we try to answer science questions with faith answers, when we view the Bible as a science textbook and try to prove what's going on in modern science, because they're totally different orientations of the same thing. And we don't have to be afraid of uh, answering science questions with faith answers. And for some of you, maybe that's what happened. You got bumped out of church because you came to, to church with a bunch of how questions and a bunch of science questions, like, how could this happen? And somebody tried to answer them with faith answers. They tried to answer you with why, and the two didn't match up, and you go, well, faith and science must not be compatible. But you didn't realize the lens or the orientation through which you were asking the question. You've experienced religious environments that maybe have asked you to just turn off your brain and just blindly believe. And so you, you stopped asking the questions, but that doesn't work. And some of you maybe grew up in a religious environment, and then you experienced a non-religious environment like college, and you liked it a lot because you got to ask all your questions. And they were answering your science questions with science answers, and it led you away from faith. But the two are compatible. They go hand in hand. Richard uh, Dawkins, actually the author of "The God Delusion" and one of the leaders of the New Atheist Movement, he says this. He says, "One of the truly bad effects of religion and I agree with this statement one of the truly bad effects of religion is that it teaches us that it is a virtue to be satisfied with not understanding. And unfortunately And I'm so grateful that Westbridge Church isn't like this, but unfortunately there are a lot of church environments that encourage us to just be okay with not understanding. Don't ask your questions, just blindly believe. And what that leads to is a naive and simplistic uh, sort of faith that's incompatible with human reason. And then it, it affirms this viewpoint that science is this based on truth and evidence while faith is just hopeful thinking and sort of legend. And in reality, can I tell you, faith has never been at odds with science. Never in human history. In fact, Christianity is actually the garden out of which modern scientific discovery has grown and flourished. Until Christianity, before Christianity, the dominant view on humanity in the world was Stoicism, Animism, and Polytheism. Stoicism said, my my mind and my body are two different things. There is a duality, and I I can think whatever I want and do whatever I want with my body, and it doesn't affect my mind and vice versa. Now, try to explain that in scientific ways. It doesn't, it, you can't reconcile that. We know now in modern sociology that what we do, our mind absolutely affects our body and vice versa. And then you had animism, which basically uh, was the worship of animals or describing divine values to different animals. And then you had polytheism, which was th- like a, a multitude of different deities. And, and all of those points of view actually thwarted scientific discovery because... How do you explain order and design and what's happening in the natural world when the only explanation is, yeah, I mean, one of the gods got angry this week and then a volcano exploded. And so those viewpoints actually thwarted scientific discovery until Christianity came on the scene. And when Christianity came on the scene, you had a group of people who followed Jesus, who followed the the God of the Hebrew people and said there is actually one God and he is the creator. And because there is a creator, there is actually design and there's complexity and there's order and now there's actually something to study and so now people started going oh because of my faith it's actually leading me to scientific discovery because there is a world with distinct form and complexity and order and design so let me ask you this question will you follow today where the evidence leads and not only where you hope it leads like if you're coming from a a really christian background you're like man i just i I hope this he's able to disprove modern science we're not going to do that today because they go hand in hand but would you be willing to, to, to just suspend your belief for a few minutes to, to dive into what the science community might actually have to say? And if you're coming from the other standpoint and you're like, I'm, I'm full in on science and I'm keeping God at arm's distance because I can't reconcile the two, would you suspend that for just a few minutes and, and just see where the evidence leads, not where you hope it leads? Pre- any previous ideas you might have about faith and science, can you suspend that momentarily? And let's ask some really honest questions. And there's a big difference between, yeah, I'm not sure I believe it and I don't want to believe it. So I'm asking you to suspend that and think through, momentarily suspend any judgment around this topic, and let's just see where the evidence leads. The, The writer of Hebrews actually says this, faith shows the reality of what we hope for. It's the evidence of things we cannot see. There's, there's things going on in our universe, in the natural world, in the scientific community that are clues that point to the evidence of, the, of what we can't see. The psalmist says it this way in Psalm 19, the heavens proclaim the glory of God. The skies display his craftsmanship. Day after day, they continue to speak. Night after night, they make him known. They speak without a sound or word. Their voice is never heard, yet their message has gone out through the earth and their words to all the world. It's like the author says there's, there's clues in the world, there's clues in the cosmos, there's clues in nature about what God is up to. And, and they, they point to the evidence even though we can't see it. And God has his fingerprints all over creation and he's giving us clues all along the way. And God is pursuing you and I and he's inviting us to respond to him. Now, you might think to yourself this, well, uh, I want that to be true, but it just feels like the Bible and its stories are antiquated and incompatible with modern science. And I totally get where you're coming from. Uh, Take, for example, the story of creation. The creation narrative tells us that God created the earth in six days. And if you track the genealogies back and you go, see, if I track generations and the genealogies that are listed in scripture back to Adam and Eve, we get the earth in 6,000 years. The earth is 6,000 years old. And I totally understand that. Now, modern science has come up with a slightly larger number, about four and a half billion. I'm not a mathematician, okay, but that's a little bit bigger. Some disparity there, right? And now I have to choose, okay, well, is the earth 6,000 years old because that's the literal interpretation of the scriptures, or is it possible to believe in the scriptures while still understanding the thermal ionization mass spectrometry, spectrometry as it relates to the field of geology and the half-life of isotopes? <laughs> Do you know that they can isolate isotopes within rocks and then follow their half-life and then discover and count that back to when they were at full strength and then get the, the age of the earth? You go, I don't know if I believe any of that. That's hard to believe. That's modern science. Now, they do the same thing with asteroids because they're like, well, sometimes water and gravity have an effect, but now they're actually taking rocks from space and doing the same thing and arriving at the same conclusion. Now, here's the thing. I I think we miss some wonderful clues along the way when we feel the need to choose between the two, when we feel like, okay, I don't know what to do with that. For example, the Hebrew language has very few nouns. And so they have to use nouns in multiple different ways to create different shading for different things. And so, for example, uh, the word yom, Y-O-M, is the Hebrew word for day. But it's also, they have to use that for daylight. It's the same word. And also, it's the same word that's used to describe an epoch of time. Uh, Any kind of finite period of time that has a beginning and an end, but can be an unspecified period of time. Any period of time that has a beginning and an end. It could be a very, very, very long time. And so when you think about that, an undefined period of time, in fact, we read in the New Testament, uh, the Apostle Peter writes, for God, a day is like a thousand years, a thousand years is like a day. It's not a big deal for God. So the idea that there is simply, these were the steps. Uh, When you read the creation narrative, you're saying this is the process by which the world was created, but the time period of a day isn't necessarily 24 hours. Every day could have been 800 million years, an epoch of time. You might say, well, listen, I just believe that it is 6,000 years old. I believe that. And I just believe God compressed everything and whatever modern science tells us, he compressed it all and did it in 6,000 years. And I have no problem with that. Believe me, I don't. I respect that. He totally could have. He's God. I wasn't even there. (laughs) On the other hand, it's also okay to say that science is objective and that makes sense and that the world is four and a half billion years old and that doesn't negate or take away from the creation narrative in any way. It doesn't undermine it. It doesn't say it couldn't have happened. It doesn't say, well, because when you understand what you're reading, then it it can make perfect sense. I've personally found science to be very faith-affirming. And here's why. I'm not trying to answer how questions with why answers. When I come across something in science, it tells me how, and then my faith leads me to ask why. And the two go hand in hand. And then you've got evolution. So this is a question for a lot of people. Many many point to the idea that evolution disproves faith in God or the idea of a creator or the idea of creative design. But if you're going to believe in evolution, then you've got to somewhere along the way deal with the Cambrian explosion. And the Cambrian explosion is a period in time where all of the, uh, basically the animals that we now have living on the earth today suddenly show up in the fossil record. And there was no record of them before, but all of a sudden they all show up in one span of time, and it's called the Cambrian Explosion. So what do I do with that? And what do you do with the fossil record itself? If something evolved from this to that, then there's got to be some transitional fossils along the way. We should have thousands and thousands and thousands of transitional fossils of these sort of favorable mutations, and we don't have any. In fact, uh, evolutionary biologist Stephen J. Gold, who himself is not a believer, He actually writes this. He says, The extreme rarity of transitional forms in the fossil record persists as the trade secret of paleontology. Now you hear that and you're just like, I have no idea what you're talking about, dude. Here's basically what he's saying. He summarizes it. He says, The evolutionary tree that adorns our textbooks have data only at the tips and nodes of their branches, the rest is inference. In other words, he's saying if you look at a tree and you you think about how we talk about evolution, all we have is the very tip at the end of a branch and we've colored in the rest with what we think happened. That's fascinating. That word inference sounds a lot like faith to me. Everybody is using faith in this process, folks, wherever you land on it. And so today I want to give you three helpful questions that will help as you dive into faith and science. Three things that will just give you a filter. As you begin to dive into this for yourself, and I hope that you will, because I think that science really affirms faith in God. And the first question to ask is this, what caused everything that exists? Like, where did this all come from? What caused all this? This is often referred to as the cosmological question. Is this created by an intelligent designer? Is is there an infinite God, or is the universe itself just self-sustaining? Is it just self-existent? Something had to come first, God or matter. And we can't prove it today, but we want to take the data that we have available and determine the reasonable probability. If you're looking for absolutes today, you're going to be disappointed, whether it's faith or science. What are the clues that point us to the reasonable possibility of a creator? Well, we know that all of science points to the idea that the universe did have a starting point. In 1929, Edwin Hubble, uh, the the Hubble telescope is named after him, uh, was able to prove that the universe is constantly expanding. It's it's moving at an incredible speed that the universe is expanding. And so as he studied the expansion of the universe, he started to come to the logical conclusion that if the universe is expanding outward, it must have had a starting point. And so he created this theory about the starting point, and then other scientists started to add on to that. And in 1964, Arno Penzias and Robert Wilson discovered the cosmic microwave background. Uh, What this is, is uh, they won a Nobel Prize in 1978 for physics for this discovery. It basically answers the idea that there was indeed a beginning to the ever-expanding universe. And their discovery became labeled the Big Bang. when you, th- when you hear Big Bang, if you grew up in some, maybe a, some kind of church community that was threatened by the Big Bang theory, that uh, really rocked the Christian world. Because scientists were saying, see, if there's a Big Bang, then the whole creation was a myth. The Big Bang proves that there is no God, because what it proves is that the universe just exploded out of nowhere. I think just the opposite. There had to be matter that exploded. Where did that matter come from? There was a Big Bang? I totally believe that. That's how God did it. That's so cool. That's amazing. I think when I read in the the Genesis narrative, God said, let there be light, and there was light. Seems like there would have been a Big Bang that goes along with that. Oh, that's amazing. I want to review that record someday. That's super cool. The Big Bang caused the universe to be continually expanding. And yet one of the things that they're discovering now is that the universe is actually, in its its nonstop expansion, is actually starting to wind down. Think about that. So there was a beginning, and there's going to be an end. Now, it's not anytime soon. I would keep paying your mortgage. But (laughs) (laughs) the cosmological question, where does all this come from? Everything that exists started somewhere. That's the cosmological question. And that question does not prove God. But it's a really good clue. In Genesis 1, it says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. This lines up with a big bang. Science and faith are not at odds. In fact, another great clue is called the anthropic principle. This is the fine tuning of the universe. It seems as though the universe, especially when you get to planet Earth, it seems as if it's been fine tuned to support and sustain human life. Somehow, this planet's just made for it. And there are so many variables that had to be perfectly fine tuned if even one of those variables was off by a fraction of a fraction of a fraction Our planet would cease to exist. Francis Collins was the director of the Human Genome Project. It was a huge project which was responsible for mapping out the entire human genome, all the the DNA of human beings, basically. He started off as an atheist, and through his study in genetics, just came to go, there is absolutely no way that, that this just happened. There has to be creative design, and became a follower of Jesus. In fact, he wrote a book called The Language of God. It's a fantastic read if you are looking for something scientific to read this week. And the more uh, more he studied genetics, the more it pointed him toward the idea of uh, an intelligent creator. And so he writes this about this topic of the universe and the anthropic principle and how the the world just seems to be fine-tuned to sustain human life. He says, when you look from the perspective of scientists at the universe, it looks as if it knew we were coming There are 15 constants. He's talking about in the universe, there are these 15 constants. He says, uh, he gives some examples, the gravitational constant, various constants about the strong and weak nuclear force, etc., that have precise values. If any one of these constants was off by even one part in a million, or in some cases, one part in a million million, the universe could not have actually come to the point where we see it matter would not have been able to coalesce there would have been no galaxy stars planets or people his conclusion is this in sum our universe is wildly improbable think about that on the flip side a rather outspoken atheist and physicist named stephen hawking brilliant guy he actually wrote about this exact same topic and here's what he writes he says if the rate of expansion One second after the Big Bang had been smaller by even one part in 100,000 million millionths. I love how they can just math it up like that. I mean, it's amazing. The universe would have re collapsed before it ever reached its present size into a hot fireball. The odds against a universe like ours emerging out of something like the Big Bang are enormous. And then he says this I think there are religious implications. That's fascinating. This is a guy who is a staunch atheist who says, you know, when I look at everything, it's, I think there might be some religious implications to this. Pretty astounding that he makes that statement. The anthropic principle, the universe is finely tuned to support and to sustain human life. It does not prove God, but it's a really good clue. In fact, I love what the psalmist writes in Psalm 8. When I look at the night sky and see the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars you set in place, what are mere mortals that you should think about them? Human beings that you should care for them. Doesn't it feel like that sometimes? Uh, well, a couple of years ago, there was an, an eclipse, and uh, my wife and I took all of our kids and made them stay up late. And you know, we're out on our driveway at 11.45 at night, just staring up at the sky. All of us are laying across our driveway. And we're watching this eclipse, and it was just, we were all just like, man, that's amazing. And you start to sense a little bit of what the psalmist writes when he's like, when I look at all of this, when I look at the vastness of the universe and things that are going on in the cosmos that we can't even understand, and to think that the God who created all of that is mindful of me, that's fascinating. It's absolutely amazing. It it leads me to believe that science actually supports faith. It actually points toward an intelligent and loving creator and not away from it. And That's a great question for us to ask. Where did everything come from that exists? Here's a second big question to ask. Uh, What caused humanity's desire for morality? I mean, what is it about human beings that causes us to have some sort of sense of right and wrong? C.S. Lewis wrote a book a long time ago. It's been around for forever called Mere Christianity. And the opening part of his book is called Right and Wrong as a Clue to the Meaning of the Universe. Lewis demonstrates that there is a universal sense of morality in every culture. There is a universal understanding of right and wrong that seems to be hardwired into every human being. What if God doesn't actually exist? Then what does that make us as human beings? Scientist Carl Sagan said we are cosmic accidents. So if God doesn't exist, then we're just a bunch of cosmic accidents bumping into each other out here in this thing called space and this planet that we live on. But one of the clues that tends to push against that idea is the idea of morality, the sense of right and wrong that is hardwired into human beings. Why is that? I would suggest that it's because we are created in the image of God. There is something in us that is drawn to this. And while different cultures have different standards, everyone has a standard of morality. In fact, uh, Solomon would eventually write it like this. Uh, in Ecclesiastes, he says, God made everything beautiful for its own time. He has planted eternity in the human heart. But even so, people cannot see the whole scope of God's work from beginning to end. He says, y- y- we, we in our finite humanity, we're not able to see what God is up to from the beginning all the way to the end. And yet, in the midst of that, God has planted eternity in the human heart. There's something that's been inside of us, a sense of right and wrong in eternity, and we are drawn to be connected to the source of that morality. We're drawn to it. There is a want to, and that want to is called faith. Evolution argues that uh, basically what presently exists in us is nothing more than what is and what has been essential for our survival. It's the, it's the classic phrase around evolution, the survival of the fittest. And, and so the, the idea behind evolution is that I'm only going to do things that are in my own best interest for my own survival. Anything outside of that is really useless for me. And yet, all around the world, people believe in God, even though God is not essential for survival. It completely flies in the face of evolutionary theory. In fact, faith in God from an evolutionary standpoint is useless because it costs costs time and it costs money. It actually compels its members to even make sacrifices that sometimes undermine their own well-being, oftentimes for the best interest of somebody else. Oftentimes that person is a stranger. Think about that. It has nothing to do with survival of the fittest. And if evolution were true, if it was survival of the fittest, then why in the world would any human being ever do anything altruistic or for the benefit of someone else ever? It seems we would ever only do things that served our own self-interest. But there is something in us that draws us to serve the other, even when the other is somebody that we don't know. What is that that causes us to want to be a part of something bigger than ourselves? German philosopher Immanuel Kant in the 17th century, he wrote this. He says, Two things fill me with constantly increasing admiration and awe the longer and more earnestly I reflect on them. The starry heavens without and the moral law within. In other words, he says there there are these two big things that really keep me anchored. There are these two great clues that are continually pointing me to the idea of a creator: the universe, what's happening in the cosmos, and what God's doing in my own heart. This is the evidence of things we cannot see. And so the cosmological question asks, what caused everything to exist? Where did matter come from? If not intelligent design, then, then, then what? And you've got to answer that question, and it's a great question. And the anthropic principle asks how this planet seems to be so fine-tuned to support and to sustain human life to such an incredible degree. And the morality question asks us how we are drawn to something so much bigger and more loving and have some agreed-upon sense of right and wrong outside of ourselves. And I can tell you, none of these things prove God. But they're really good clues. Here's the third question we should ask ourselves. If the evidence leads to a God of love, how will I respond? How will I respond? What difference does this make in my life? I don't believe that faith and science need to be in conflict. Science tells me how, and faith tells me why. And the why behind it is you. God loves you. God wanted to love you, God wanted to create you and love you, and so He created a space and a place where it could happen. And it's so important that we understand the Bible is not a science textbook, it's not written to be a science textbook. And we've got to make sure that we don't, as the church, try to answer science questions with faith answers, but that we understand that there's a different orientation to those questions and that they can both be simultaneously true and they are not mutually exclusive. The goal is not to answer science questions with faith answers. The point of the scriptures is to uh, point us to a loving creator. One more quote from Francis Collins. He's the guy from the Genome Project. He says this, In this modern era of cosmology, evolution and the human genome, is there still the possibility of a richly satisfying harmony between the scientific and the spiritual worldviews? I answer with a resounding yes. In my view, there is no conflict in being a rigorous scientist and a person who believes in a God who takes a personal interest in each one of us. In the beginning, God created. Above everything else is the creator. All scientific discovery points to the idea of an intelligent design of our universe. That's why in the Old Testament, Nehemiah, he writes this and says, you alone are the Lord. You made the skies and the heavens and all the stars. You made the earth and the seas and everything in them. You give life to everything and the multitudes of heaven worship you. The universe is fundamentally personal because God is personally invested and interested in you. In the first few chapters of Genesis, we get the creation narrative, and it's fascinating to read what God does. And I'd encourage you to read the, the story in Genesis 1 and 2 this week. And here's what you'll find. On the first day, God created, and he's creating, and then it says, that was morning and evening the first day, and it marks the first day, the end of the first day. And then you get to the day two, and it says, and morning and evening, that marks the second day. And all of the days are marked, beginning and end, and the day is marked. And then on the sixth day, God creates human beings, and then there are no more species created after that. Amazing how Scripture and science aligns on that point. And then you get to day seven, and here's what we read. On the seventh day, God had finished his work of creation, so he rested from all his work. And God blessed the seventh day and declared it holy because it was the day when he rested from all his work of creation. And there's no closing. It doesn't say, and then, you know, morning and evening, the seventh day came to a close. It doesn't say that. Why? Because we're in it. We're still in the seventh day. It's one of those finite seasons, this epoch of time. And God is inviting us into his rest and into relationship with him. The natural world is fine-tuned for life. And then God has brought with it the spiritual world, which is fine-tuned for relationship. And you and I are invited. God created you, and God loves you, and he's inviting you in to relationship with him. And you can take all of your questions about science and you can hold them simultaneously with faith and go, man, science asks the questions of how and I can start to answer some of those questions and faith informs my why. And when you understand how to hold those, you actually realize that what's going on in the natural world actually affirms a creative and intelligent design. And that creator created you and loves you and has invited you into relationship with him. And if you've never said yes to that, you can do that. It's not something you earn your way to. It's not something you behave your way to. It's something that God just invited you into. If you'd like to say yes, you can just agree with this prayer. God, please forgive my sins and forgive me for the times that I've walked away from you and I'm so grateful you never walk away from me. And so I pray, God, that uh, I wanna say yes to your invitation. Make me your son, make me your daughter and help me to follow you as best as I know how from this moment on. And God, I, I pray for every one of us who are doing our best to follow you when it comes to these questions of faith and science, I pray, God, that you would help us to lean into you, that the that, that questions around science would just affirm our faith and that we would be reminded how much you love us and it would cause us to love others as you have loved us. We pray this in your name. Amen.